if you have uh, children or if you have raised children, then you have no doubt gone through the necessary but delicate process of helping them discern uh, the truthfulness of what some of their friends may tell them. Uh, Some kids love to tell a good story. Some kids make a habit of telling incredible stories as though they are, you know, the truth, and, and, and perhaps maybe because they like attention or they, they just have this amazing imagination. When our son Joshua was in early elementary, it was not uncommon for him to come home from school uh, announcing some incredible thing that his friends had told him that he simply accepted as gospel truth. Uh, one day, he announced to us with great joy and anticipation that his friend was building an airplane for him and his buddies in his backyard and was going to fly them all to Australia. It was so cool. And that same friend was building a jet pack for another friend, and then he told them that he had discovered a monkey, a new species of monkey that was native to Massachusetts. It was called the nostril monkey, I think, uh, and that he knew every animal species ever discovered, you know, And so on the one hand, imagination is great, right? It's tons of fun. On the other, when you begin to see that kind of pattern of telling fantastic and not true things over and over, you have this delicate but necessary obligation to help your kids kind of understand not everything so-and-so says is always true. You have to consider the source. And, And that's true in all sorts of areas of life. Uh, For instance, there's a massive difference between the credibility of a headline in the Wall Street Journal versus the National Enquirer, right? You know, if I read about, uh, you know, take for instance the actor Chadwick Boseman's death, if I read about his recent death in the same journal that is telling me about Elvis's new restaurant in Des Moines and alien cattle abductions in Wyoming, I'm not sure whether to believe that first story. But if I see it on several credible news stations, or even better, in a a press release from the family, now I know I can trust it. You have to consider the source. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants us to do with the gospel that he preaches. He wants us to consider the source. If you were with us last week when we started into the book of Galatians, we looked at the introduction in verses 1 to 10. Uh, You'll remember that Paul made some pretty bold claims about the gospel, namely that there is only one gospel and that holding fast to it is a matter of life and death. And he even summarized that gospel message for us in verses 3 to 5, that it is the good news of what God has accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son to deal with our sin and to deliver us from the present evil age according to God's will for the sake of his glory. But is there really just one gospel? Is there really just one? Is it really a matter of life and death? Will you be eternally condemned if you do not believe this one message of Christ? And how do we know that Paul is right? How do we know if he's right? Why should the Galatians back then or any of us today take Paul 
at his word and trust what he has to say about the gospel, especially since there were some pretty influential voices back then that were telling the Galatians to ignore Paul, to not trust what he has to say, accusing Paul of making it up or of stealing it from someone else. And there are plenty of voices today that would have us do the same thing, that they, to, to claim that Paul's version of Christianity uh, drastically departs from who Jesus really was and what he really said, or that, or that Paul's version of Christianity was simply one of many different versions in the ancient world. Paul just happened to get published, but, but we really should go back and discover all of these other versions as well and give them equal playtime, or that even if Paul was representative of his time, he was trapped in his time. And in modern times, we know better than to believe some of the things he was talking about, like hell or resurrection, or that there's only one way to know God, or that you can even know God at all. Why should we believe Paul's gospel? Why should we believe this book? Why trust what he has to say here? Well, Paul's answer from verse 11, really all the way to the end of chapter 2, is to invite us to consider the source of his gospel, where it comes from, namely the fact that the gospel is not man-made. It is revealed from heaven. The gospel of Jesus is not man-made. It is revealed from heaven. This is not something Paul came up with or a bunch of religious people sat around and, and kind of came up with this. This is something that God came up with and communicated to us here on earth. That's what Paul claims in verses 11 to 12, the divine source of the gospel. And then he backs up that claim first by offering evidence from his personal history in verses 13 to 24. And then by offering evidence from his meeting in Jerusalem with the apostles in, in chapter 2, 1 to 10. And then finally by offering evidence from his meeting with his confrontation with Peter at Antioch in, verses, in chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. And all of these different stories he's telling all work together to drive home the point that the gospel of Jesus that Paul preaches is not man-made. It comes from God himself, which, if true, changes everything. That's big news. It calls on us to believe it and hope in it and put our trust in it. So tonight we're just going to look at 1, 11 to 24, uh, starting with the claim itself that the gospel is revealed from God. And that claim is as straightforward as you can make it. If you look again at verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You may remember from last week how right away in verse 1, Paul clarifies that his apostleship is not from man nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then in verse 10, he says something similar. He calls out the Galatians saying, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, 
I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Seven times in four verses, Paul uses this word man or people, mankind, in contrast with God as the foundation of his ministry and his message. Either he's serving one or the other. And and the reason he keeps pushing this point that he's not serving man is because that was what his accusers were trying to convince the Galatians of, that that, that Paul was just actually serving man. He was making this kind of stuff up. And if they can convince the Galatians that Paul's message is really human and not divine, well, they win. They win. It's really a brilliant strategy when you think about it. And it's a legitimate criterion. Because if Paul's gospel, if our gospel is truly from men, if this is something that just people made up, you know, a man-made religion to try and explain the world or, or, or cope with suffering or whatever, well, then we should reject it out of hand. We should kick it to the curb. We shouldn't build our life around a man-made message like that. So it's a legitimate criterion. But if it is then from heaven, if Paul's message does come from God, again, that changes everything. All of a sudden, we have a message that we must pay attention to. It's, it's kind of like going to an art gallery and, and watching kind of a, a number of critics circle around a painting, all offering their opinions of what the painting means, and then having the artist come out and explain it to you. Whose opinion are you going to go with? Paul spoke with the artist, or rather, the artist spoke to Paul. That's what he tells us. He got this gospel as a revelation from God. He didn't get it from some other person, even though there were plenty of people preaching that same gospel already. Rather, God himself revealed it to him on the road to Damascus, which is something he's going to elaborate on on later. So if God is revealing himself and his plan in the gospel, we are foolish not to listen or believe it. As John Stott summarizes, Paul's claim here then is that his gospel, which was being called into question by the Judaizers and being deserted by the Galatians, his gospel was neither an invention, as if his own brain had fabricated it, nor a tradition as if the church had handed it down to him, but a revelation. It is from God, for God made it known to him. And if that is true, then this is not a message that one can simply ignore or, or politely disagree with or pick and choose the parts that we kind of like and, and leave the stuff we don't. This is a message that everyone must reckon with. Everyone. It is... Frankly, the key that unlocks the universe. This is the thing that that helps us understand why we're even here. The glory of God through Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And so is it true? He makes the claim in no uncertain terms. This is from God. Is the claim verifiable? Is it true? Well, in verses 13 to 24, Paul kind of reviews his personal history as evidence that the gospel came from God and not from him or anyone else. And there are three things that he emphasizes in his story. First, how opposed he was to this gospel 
in his former life. Second, how drastically the gospel changed his life. And then third, how God empowered his ministry quite independent of the other apostles who were preaching the same gospel at the time. So basically, Paul kind of shares his testimony in chapter 2. He walks us through his faith story with a particular aim of helping us understand that the gospel he preaches and has committed his life to and is calling the Galatians to come back to is God's gospel, not man's. And so first, he reminds them of his former zeal for Judaism in verses 13 to 14, how he was not looking for Jesus, uh, but was in fact an enemy of the gospel and a champion of religious traditions that stood in the way of the gospel. I have a, of a friend um, back in Massachusetts who, he grew up in kind of a, basically a secular Jewish home, so no real religious influence at all. And so as a young adult, he decided he needed to figure out who he was and who God was, and so he was going to go on a quest. He was going to hike the Appalachian Trail and find himself and find figure out who God was, and so on and so forth. And so he started in Maine and heading south, uh, and, and by the time he got to New Hampshire, he became a Christian. He met Jesus. And if I remember the story correctly, by the time he got to New York, he met his wife. So pretty successful trip, right? That was not the Apostle Paul's story. He was not looking for Jesus or exploring God or investigating Christianity. He had God figured out. And he had concluded that the gospel was an enemy of true faith. And this was widely known. He says in verse 13, For you've heard of my former way of life in Judaism. And this, this was no secret to the Galatians or, or to anybody and, and that former way of life, that former manner of life in Judaism was, was characterized by two things, he says here. First, his violent persecution of the church. He describes it in Acts 26. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul's former life was characterized by a zealous opposition to the gospel of Jesus, a violent Opposition. That was the first part. The second was that his life was characterized by a zealous commitment to the religious traditions of his fathers. So basically, Paul was kind of like the student that nobody liked in the classroom, or, or at least that everyone tried to cheat off of in the classroom. He says, I was advancing uh, in Judaism beyond many of my own age, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He was the Harvard-trained uh, expert in Judaism. Uh, as he says in Acts 22, he educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers being zealous for God, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was committed to the law of Moses and opposed to anything that threatened that law. 
Paul was not looking for the gospel. He was an enemy of the gospel. And so, his point here, if he was going to make up a gospel, this wouldn't be it. Like, if he was going to come up with some sort of man-made religion or some sort of whatever, landing on Jesus and faith in him is not where he would have landed. He was opposed to that in his former life. And so, that raises the question, how in the world does someone so adamantly opposed to Jesus and faith in him, some, someone so adamantly opposed to something that seems to threaten the Judaism that he, he knew and, and had nearly perfected, how does he all of a sudden stake his life and ministry and reputation and even his eternity on the very message he was trying to overturn? Well, that brings us to his second point, Paul's dramatic conversion in verses 15 to 16. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, God revealed his Son to Paul by revelation, in a dramatic way. Paul didn't make up the gospel. He didn't figure out the gospel. God met him from heaven and revealed his son to him while he was on that road to Damascus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 5. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul being a a Jewish name for Paul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. God met him from heaven. Paul set out for Damascus with every intention of showing up there arresting as many Christians as he could find, hauling them back to Jerusalem so that they could stand trial, and if everything went well, be executed. That was his goal. By the time he got to Damascus, he believed in Jesus, and within a few days, he was preaching Jesus, going to the synagogues, reasoning with the Jews there that Jesus was the Son of God. Because Jesus revealed himself to Paul, not simply to correct him or put him in his place, but to save him and to send him to bear witness to the very gospel he was trying to overturn among the nations. As John Stott explains, like Jacob who was chosen before he was born, and like Jeremiah who before he was born was appointed to be a prophet... So Paul, before he was born, was set apart to be an apostle. Which, you know, not only does that testify to the humanity of life before birth, which is true. It's one of many verses that talks about that. That's not quite Paul's point, but it's worth noting there. His point here is that if he was consecrated as an apostle before his birth, Well, then plainly, he had nothing to do with it. This was from God, not man. Paul's dramatically changed life 
is evidence of the gospel that he preaches coming from God, that it was no man-made invention. I mean, how else? How else could somebody who had been such a violent opponent of something turn around in such a short time to become an advocate and a champion of that very thing? Because Jesus changed him. That's how. That's the only way. And if that's true, then the gospel he preaches is true. And a similar thing ought to be able to be said of us, right? I mean, our changed lives ought to be a testimony to the world of the truthfulness of the gospel as well. And and for some of us, that change from before we knew Christ to knowing Christ may be more internal than external. Maybe we were, you know, really compliant and we did all of the right things before we knew Jesus. And so maybe our life doesn't look that different from the street. And so we may have to be a little more transparent in sharing our story. But for some of us, uh, there are people who knew what we were like before Jesus, and then they see us now and they know something happened here, right? Something happened. Uh, When I was in high school, early high school, I was the kid where the Bible church parents told their kids not to hang out with him, right? Cigarette, alcohol, all that kind of stuff. And, and, And I thought I had God figured out. I thought I had God figured out. I thought I had the world figured out. I tried to convince one of my friends there's no way he could actually know whether anything was true or not. In fact, there was no way he could even know for sure if he existed or not. I thought I was so smart. And then God changed me. And a few years after that, I got to help share the gospel with that very friend that I tried to convince that he couldn't know if he existed and got to see him place his faith in Christ. Our changed lives should be a testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel, that it is from God and not man. And I think of 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16, Paul testifies there. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Who else but Christ can do that? And so there's one last point Paul wants to make in in terms of his evidence that the gospel's from God and not man or anyone else, uh, and that's his revelation-driven ministry in the middle of verse 16 to 24. He, he kind of started with the before, his opposition to the gospel, and then how he came to know Christ. Now, this is what his life looked like afterwards, and, and it's interesting to see what he emphasizes here. So, middle of verse 16 again, Uh, God was pleased to reveal his son to me when God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. That's the first thing he points out. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Why in the world would that be his first response, or at least the first thing he describes here? What would be wrong having 
seen a revelation of Jesus to go and consult with other people who knew Jesus to make sure I got it right. What would be wrong with that? Nothing. Nothing would be wrong with that. In fact, eventually he does exactly that. When you get to chapter 2, he talks about going to Jerusalem after 14 years and sitting down with the apostles to present his gospel and make sure he wasn't running and had not run in vain. So there's nothing wrong with that consulting. So why does he make the point that that was not his first reaction? His point is that he preaches the same gospel as the apostles, but he did not learn it from them or any other person. He learned it through a revelation from God. He spent 14 years in ministry before he truly sat down and compared notes with the other apostles. And lo and behold, they were preaching the same thing. This thing doesn't come from men. It comes from God. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, what he was doing in Arabia, we were not really sure. Um, whether he was preaching the gospel there or whether he was communing with God there. Uh, Acts does not tell us about the Arabia trip. Um, The one interesting thing is that Paul mentions Arabia again in Galatians chapter 4, where he specifies that was the location of Mount Sinai. Uh, Mount Sinai where God gave Israel the law and where Elijah fled uh, when his zealous work for God seemed to produce no results. And so some think that Similarly, when when Paul's zeal for God ran up against the brick wall named Jesus, he fled to Sinai, he followed Elijah's example and fled to Sinai where he reflected on the relationship between the law God gave at that spot and this revelation of Jesus Christ he'd just received. We're not sure. There does seem to be some echoing of Elijah's story because both of them head to Damascus right after that trip, but... What we do know is that Paul did not go immediately to Jerusalem. He didn't run off and check that out. When he did finally go to Jerusalem three years later, which you can read about in Acts 9, 26 to 29, he testifies before God that he only met, he was only there a brief time, 15 days, and he only met Peter and one other apostle, James the Lord's brother, before he departed off to Syria and Cilicia. He did not receive the gospel of Jesus from man, nor was he taught it. That's his point. Now, this is really important. Paul's point here is not that he has some exclusive knowledge of God that only he got through his revelation. That's not his point. Nor is the gospel a secret revelation that is just unverifiable, like ancient Gnosticism, or or even like uh, Joseph Smith in founding Mormonism, or Muhammad in founding Islam, where you just kind of have to take their word for it that God met with them, because no one else was there, and there's no evidence that it really happened. You just, you got to go with them. That's not Christianity at all. The gospel is verifiable. That's not Paul's point here. This happened in history. There were lots of people who witnessed the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Nor is Paul's point that he preached a different gospel than the apostles or that their gospel was wrong and he was fixing it. Again, in recent centuries in biblical studies, it's been pretty common to say things like, 
you know, Jesus was basically some wandering Jewish mystic who left a minimal impact on the world. But then Paul came along and took Jesus and kind of merged him with some Greco-Roman ideas, and that's what created what we now call Christianity in the West. A lot of secular history books describe it that way. There are so many historical problems with that reconstruction, it's hard to know where to start. But the, the basic point is that to, to simply look at the heart of of the gospel, there is a consistency between Paul's message and the message of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the other apostles, they're preaching the same gospel. There was no clash in that early church in that way. And that's the, Paul, the point that Paul is making here, that, that he was preaching the exact same gospel as the other apostles, despite having virtually no interaction with them. He didn't get it from them. He got it from God, just like they did. This was not some human conspiracy where they all kind of plotted, all right, what, what are we going to make up about Jesus now? Uh, nor was it some hodgepodge of conflicting and, and contradicting spiritual nuggets, which is what you find in Gnosticism and other ancient heresies. Rather, because the gospel is from God, there was consistency between Paul's message and the Jerusalem church, the apostles in Jerusalem, without even comparing notes. They were preaching the same message as he concludes in chapter 2. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. The Jerusalem church did not teach Paul the gospel, but they did celebrate how the gospel had changed him and the lives that were being changed through his preaching of it. Which brings the question back to us. If this message is from God, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do? What do we do with Paul and his gospel? That's the question that this passage forces us to wrestle with. Given his claim and the evidence he supplies from his personal life, here's my recommendation. Read Paul, letters like Galatians, and believe him. Believe him. Trust what he says, because when he says it in Scripture, he says it from God. This gospel is not man's invention. Don't, don't give in to the temptation to tune out in Paul's letters. Paul's letters can get hard. I guess like he's writing this legal briefing sometimes, and he's going through this painstaking logical, and it can get hard. Don't give in to the temptation to tune out. He's speaking from God. And don't give in to the temptation to pit Paul against Jesus or Paul against the other apostles as though then it's simply us to, up to us to pick and choose who we want to go with. They were on the same page. And don't give in to the temptation to think that Paul's words were simply Paul's ideas. And we can take them or leave them based on whether or not we agree. Consider the source. Consider the source. 
Paul's gospel. That what he says in his letters, he says from God. And so it is upon us to listen to Paul's gospel, to read it, to meditate on it, to cling to it, to cherish it, to talk about it, to think about it, to celebrate it, to be ready to rearrange our lives around it, to believe it, to obey it, to hold fast to it, and to hold it out to others. It is the gospel of God. As Paul says in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he has given this gospel to us. It's for us. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to listen? Are we going to believe? Are we going to trust and follow May we build our lives around the gospel of God's grace. And and as we work our way through Galatians together, may we not just deepen our knowledge of it. I mean, I hope that happens, that, that we understand it better. But may we deepen our affection and our passion for it. That this is how we live. May God have that effect on us as we come under the sound of his gospel together. Because it's his gospel, and he deserves to be listened to and obeyed. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, your Son says to us, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. May we hold fast to those words. May we stake our entire lives and our very eternity on those words, God, with an unyielding faith in your gospel. Lord, thank you for the grace and the hope that we have in Jesus, grace to be redeemed and forgiven and changed and made new, hope to hold on to and to hold out to others with confidence in the victory that Christ has accomplished. Lord, may may we know that grace and that hope as a church family, God. For those of us who are struggling emotionally through a long, uh, seemingly unending season, for those struggling financially or relationally or spiritually, Lord, for those struggling physically with illness and sickness, Mike Merritt, Joe Couture, Billy Aldi. Lord, for those caring for aged, aging and sick parents, for Mark Gellerman and Beth Ross, for Lori Soppy and Steve Boyd, for Hazel Grim Romberg. Lord, may each one know the grace and And Lord, we think of the Benton County community this week as well, as they grieve the sudden death of two students in one week, Lord. How heart-wrenching. God, would you meet them with the comfort that comes from your cross and the hope of your resurrection. And Lord, we pray for our missionaries as well. God, would you strengthen them in your grace and fill their hearts with hope as they rest in you and as they hold out your gospel to others. Lord, we think especially of joy in her work in the Ukraine. 
Lord, thank you uh, for the refreshment of her recent sabbatical and, and, and home assignment. And Lord, may that energy propel her forward in faithful ministry in the season before her. And Lord, for our nation, we pray. May the grace and hope of your gospel prevail amid political turmoil, amid social unrest, amid fires and hurricanes and storms. Lord, may we see in the chaos around us an urgent summons to turn to the hope and grace of our one true King, Jesus, whose grace is sufficient even for us. Lord, may our greatest hope be in the victory that we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.